Well, if you have a Bible with you, open up to Matthew chapter 6 uh, and hold your place there and also turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So Matthew chapter 6 will be there first and then 2 Corinthians chapter 8 uh, a little bit later. If you don't have a Bible with you, we'll have the scripture on the screens uh, for you this morning. Well, hey, uh, before we get into that, I want to tell you about next week, we are starting our fall sermon series. And so it's called Rescued and Redeemed. We are going to be walking through the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is amazing. It is truly an epic story of God's deliverance, him rescuing his people and redeeming them and making them his own. And so what I'm excited about is the book of Exodus is so amazing in those historical stories that we're going to look at each week, but boy, does it point us to something even greater, a greater Moses, Jesus Christ, who has rescued and redeemed us from our spiritual bondage and slavery to sin. And so I'm telling you, it's going to be, the the book of Exodus is so good. So please uh, be here next week as we begin that journey over this fall semester. But a great tool that you can use uh, as we walk through the book of Exodus together is the Exodus scripture journal. So we have those for sale today in the lobby for seven bucks. Listen, those journals, I know, you know, we've been doing this now for several sermon series, and so we're kind of making it a habit here at Kernan. And I encourage you, if you haven't uh, done it yet, the, to buy one of these scripture journals because it's really a great way uh, to teach and train yourself how to not just take notes during the sermon, though that's part of it, but how to study God's Word on a deeper level. Right? I think a lot of us, we struggle with, with studying the Word of God. Sometimes we don't really know how to do it or what's the best way to do it or you know, how do we get into the Scriptures and understand the verses. I think this is just a really neat tool uh, for you to use, not just here at church in the service, though that's obviously part of it, but when you go home, right? When you go home, you can look back at that text and maybe even use that as your daily personal time with the Lord during the week. And you can write out your own thoughts about the scriptures and all those things. So it's a really helpful tool. I encourage you to pick one up today in the lobby uh, after the service. We'll have those out there. But hey, before we get into that next week, first, we're going to finish our home life series today. So for six weeks, uh, we have been looking at different aspects of our home lives and what it looks like to really glorify God at home, regardless of your stage of life or whether you're single or married or have kids or no kids. It doesn't matter. We all have a, an obligation to be obedient to the Lord and to give the life we live at home, right? In private and outside of the home, but just not here at church, right? That's kind of included in this as well. But the life we live on our own time, right? That really should be God's time. And we've been talking a lot about that topic of home life. So we're gonna finish that series today. Uh, So before we dig into that, let me pray and ask the Lord to bless his word. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that we get to open the Word of God today, that we get to see what truth really is. And Lord, I pray that as we uh, get into these uh, topics again today of home life, Lord, and what it looks like to glorify you in our personal lives at home, Lord, would you truly speak to us, Holy Spirit, through your Word and transform our thinking, transform our behavior. Would you do that, Jesus, through your power? It's in your name we pray. Amen. 
So each year, the American Psychological Association conducts a nationwide survey called Stress in America. They do this to measure attitudes and perceptions of stress among the general public. And so I want to share with you some of the results from this year's study. This year they found American stress about money this year is the highest recorded since 2015. 65% of Americans say money is a significant source of stress, and 87% say rise in prices of everyday items due to inflation is a significant source of stress. I mean, listen, I think we all feel that right now. We know exactly what they're talking about. I mean, you know it's bad when orange juice seems like a delicacy, right? It's like, what, $7? Where's, can I get a side of caviar with that? I mean, what is this, right? So we, we get it, right? I mean, we're in this all together. We feel, we feel the weight of economic inflation right now, right? Prices are going up, right? I mean, just a few months ago, right? It was like almost five bucks a gallon for gas. And we're thinking, I don't want to drive anywhere. This is crazy, right? So that added stress usually comes though with unhealthy habits. And so what I mean is normally <clears throat> when we are really stressed about something, we'll find ourselves engaging in some, some un unhealthy means and ways of coping with that stress, which in turn affects our physical bodies as well as our mental, our emotional state, possibly even our relationships. So. All of that to, to say, if money is something that you often worry about, you're not alone. You're not alone. And you may be feeling the weight of that in a variety of unhealthy ways right now. You see, the main point of this home life series has been that we must strive to model our earthly homes after our true heavenly home. That's our first place of residence. We're just not there yet. That's our real address for all eternity. As Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6, you know, he said, your kingdom come. Speaking to the Father, he said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, we could say in the midst of this series that we're talking about now, Lord, would your will be done and your kingdom come in my own home as it is true in heaven. So Lord, whatever is true in heaven, I want that to be true in my personal life. Whatever's true in, for all eternity, I want that to be true now in my temporary home. And so the topic of money, though some people think it's taboo and some people don't want to hear a preacher ever talk about it. Listen, we, we need to talk about it because it affects every part of our lives in many ways. We shouldn't be silent about it. We should talk and see what does Jesus have to say about it. The, talk, the topic of money, it, it's a huge part of our home life. And so that's why I wanted to include it in this series because, man, how could we talk about the way we live our lives at home and not talk about money? So while there may be a current wave of added stress about money in American households, listen, humanity's problems with money and how we stress out about it, that is nothing new. That's not new at all. In fact, 
The Bible has a lot to say about money, and what we're going to read today was written 2,000 years ago. So today we're going to look at what the Bible says we should believe about money, and then how that affects our behavior or what we do with our money. Because listen, like almost anything in life, right, what you believe about something, that ultimately is going to determine your behavior. Right? So your beliefs drive your behavior and your actions. So you're only going to buy that orange juice if you really think you need it with your eggs and bacon. You know what I mean? And yes, we do. Okay, so let's, let's look at this. I want us to first start with the Christian's belief about money. Well, the first thing that we Christians believe about money is, well, not even really about money. We believe that our hearts are devoted to some kind of treasure. Some kind of treasure. Our hearts must be devoted to something greater than ourselves, or at least that we think is greater than ourselves. See, Jesus teaches us in Matthew 6 that how we live is determined by our heart condition. Our belief drives our behavior, right? So whatever you're really believing in, whatever you are really putting your trust and your faith in in life, that is determining how you actually live your life. And we see that in the way Jesus talks about money in chapter 6, verse 19 through 21. So look at this. Wanda read this for us earlier. This was our scripture reading today. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there, that's where, that's how you can know where your heart will be also. There your heart will be also, Jesus says. You see, God himself designed the human heart to long for and desire meaning and purpose and security and acceptance. We want those things. We want to be accepted by other people. We want to, to feel a sense of security about us. The human heart naturally wants those things, but God designed us to find the fulfillment of those desires in him. Our relationship with him should fulfill those desires. But the problem is, because of what we call sin, what the Bible defines as sin, any departure from God's good design, right? Our sin, when we depart from the way God created us to live, that ruins things. And so what we, what we tend to do, we don't look to God to provide us and fulfill us with those longings of the heart. And Jesus tells us here that our treasures, however you want to define your treasure, right? Our treasures are an indicator. So in other words, they can serve as a really great diagnostic tool for the true state of our hearts. And that can be kind of scary as you start categorizing these treasures in your mind, maybe even right now, the things that you would call treasure. See, the, the issue is we all have some kind of treasure. It's just either God or something else, 
And that's what Jesus is getting at here. There's eternal treasure, and then there's earthly temporary treasure, and we have to submit to one. That brings us to the next sub-point about the Christian's belief about money. As Christians, we believe our hearts, our hearts cannot be devoted to both God and earthly treasures at the same time. Look what Jesus says. He continues down in verse 24. He says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. He says very plainly, look at this. Jesus says, you cannot serve God and money. It's not possible. So essentially then, there's only two ways to live, right? I mean, we're either a slave to God. So in other words, he's our master, right? He is your greatest treasure. And your heart desires him more than anything. So what do you do? You submit your life to him. It doesn't mean that you don't have nice things. It doesn't mean that you don't spend money on vacations. It doesn't mean all of that. It just means that the first thing, the first thing on your personal life agenda is to bring glory to God. And so you commit everything you have to him first. He doesn't just get the leftovers. And so we're either living like that Jesus says, this is not me, this is Jesus saying, you are either living with that mindset or you are a slave to some other treasure in your life, some idol. You know, money's really not the idol. You know that, right? Money's just a tool. Money is the tool to attain our idols. So here's a little test. If you want to know what your idols are, or we could even I could be a little more gentle here. If you want to know what really matters in life to you, do you want to know where you believe happiness will truly be found? Oh, it's simple. Look at what you throw money at. Look at where you spend your money. Oh, that's it. <laughs> that's the thing. That's what you believe ultimately is going to provide happiness and joy, right? But here's the thing. The stuff, the treasures you spend money on, that we spend money on, right? They're not usually bad things in and of themselves. Now, they can be, of course. But typically, they're good things, good pursuits that we have turned into ultimate things that we must have. They're tools to help us achieve our heart's longings and desires. Here, here's what I mean. I want to explain this a little bit here. See, if, if your true heart's desire is to feel successful and to have other people respect you, and that's really what's driving your life, well, then you may pump lots of money into your education or your children's education because that is what really matters to you. Again, hey, listen to me right now. I'm going to say it real clearly. There's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. I'm not talking about your actual actions. We're talking about the heart. I can't see your heart, but you can. And so you may pump money and money and money into education because ultimately it's not about glorifying God with your career one day. It's about having the respect of others and feeling successful. Or maybe... You really idolize the admiration 
of others with your appearance, right? And so you spend lots of money on your appearance and your physical fitness and your beauty and all these things. Maybe your idol is comfort. And so ultimately you just want to be comfortable. That doesn't necessarily mean that you spend all day in a lazy boy. You could work really hard, but ultimately you just want a comfortable life. And so you may pump lots of money into whatever that takes to get you that, leisure activities or whatever it may be, right? Maybe you just want a sense of superiority and importance. And so you will buy certain clothes and home decor and vehicles and whatever it takes to make that appearance true of you. And this is who I want people to think I really am. Man, we all struggle with that. It could be anything in life. An idol can be anything in life. Something simple or something complex. Now, here's the crazy thing. None of those things are necessarily bad in and of themselves. It's just that we're trying to look to those things to give us what only God can give. So for many Christians, I think we really struggle with this inner conflict. I think a lot of us in this room, we struggle with this inner conflict of pursuing God with our entire lives on one hand, but then on the other hand, money for something, money for something. Again, money's the tool. It's the idol that I really want, and I need it. I must have it. We probably hear our conscience often telling us, no, Andrew, you don't. You don't need that. You need to seek the Lord. We probably hear our conscience speaking to us. Seek the Lord with your finances. Don't feel so drawn to those earthly treasures. But Jesus said in verse 24 that we can't live both of those ways at the same time. Because whichever way you're living will eventually get in the way of the other. If you're pursuing the world and those idols in this world, listen, you can do that and come to church and kind of play the Christian game for a while, but eventually those two roads are going to lead you in opposite directions. Theologian John Stott says, our heart always follows our treasure, whether down to earth or up to heaven. We just can't be pulled in different directions and devote ourselves to two different things at the same time. Hey, listen, I'm a big college football fan, but I'm a Georgia Tech fan, so there's really nothing to cheer about. <laughs> but you know what really bugged me, right? So college football starts, you know, started this weekend, right? Here's what really bugs me. When I was growing up, I was a Georgia Tech fan, and of course that means I had to live in Georgia with all the Georgia Bulldog fans, whoopee-doo, okay. So what occasionally I would see, <laughs> occasionally I would see this, a tag, right, on a car, like a car plate, right, with, it would say house divided, Georgia Tech on one side and Georgia on the other, or, or a flag that somebody would hang in their yard, house divided, Georgia Tech and Georgia. In my mind, I'm thinking, no, don't you, no, no, be allegiant to one or the other, okay? Listen, when I, I don't want Georgia to win any football games. I don't care who they're playing, okay? Like, I want them to lose every single game. I know they didn't yesterday, but that's what I want, right? Because I'm a Georgia Tech fan. I'm not being pulled in two different directions. Hey, you know what it's like. You Floridians, if you're native to Florida, right? Florida State, Florida, Miami, you can't devote yourself to all three, right? Probably shouldn't this year to any of them, right? So, <laughs> but Florida won last night. Congrats. So here's the thing. It's just as silly for us to think that we can be a fan of all those different teams at the same time 
and wear all those different jerseys and go to all those different games somehow on the same day at the same time, that's impossible. And just like that, it is impossible. And we feel, you know, you feel it sometimes, that tension and that anxiety over our finances and our personal money because we have conflicting desires in our heart. Because it's not a house divided, it's a heart divided. If you feel conflicted about your finances and your giving to the church or anything like that, maybe it's because you're trying to submit to two masters and that's why you feel anxiety about it. You're being pulled in two different directions. So what do we need to believe? What do we need to believe deep down in our hearts? It brings us to our third sub-point. We must believe Jesus is enough. He is really enough. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's what's been done for you. The richest person in the world, in all the heavens, in the universe. God himself, the creator of all things. He owns everything. Jesus was in the heavens, the riches of heavens, and he did not stay there because he wanted to be comfortable and just leave us to ourselves to think, hey, maybe they can figure it out. They're lost in their sin. They're separated from my holiness, but I'm just gonna see if they can work themselves out of this. If they can somehow purchase themselves out of this. If they can believe hard enough that they can do it on their own. That's not what Jesus said. Because he knew that it was impossible. It was impossible to love him and the world at the same time. And all of our hearts were devoted to the world, not him. And so what did Jesus do? He came to this earth. He was not born in a palace. He was born in an animal feeding trough. because he wanted to walk in your shoes. He was raised in a small town in Palestine, not in the big city, not making a name for himself. He suffered. He was ridiculed constantly. He didn't care about his reputation or his appearance. He didn't want to be successful in the world's eyes. He knew that we couldn't do it on our own. He knew that you wouldn't have the strength. He knew that you would give your heart to other things. So he gave his life to you, for you. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, listen, that, was, that should have been us. It's not that just, it's not that Jesus died to just wipe your sins under a rug somewhere. He died on the cross because that was supposed to be me. That was supposed to be you. And he really did substitute himself in your place. The strongest, richest person in the universe became the weakest, poorest person in the universe so that you could have a life, eternal life. Not so that you could accumulate things on this earth, 
but so that you could turn from the things of this earth and put your hope and your faith and your trust in him and find your security and your approval and your importance and your success in him so that one day he could bless you with the riches of heaven. And that's what all of this is leading to. Do you know that? How often, as you're balancing your your finances and you're looking at your budget and you're thinking about your money, how often do you think about, man, I've got an eternal inheritance waiting for me in heaven for all, ever and ever, forever and ever. I have a table, a seat at the table of God forever and ever. I have the riches of God forever and ever. So now, what am I going to do with my money while I'm temporarily living this short life on this little planet? And that's the perspective we've got to believe. We've got to believe that Jesus is enough. That everything we've ever wanted is found in him. It's only when we believe that our inheritance in him is enough that we can truly be free. Be free from the stress and anxiety of money. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, verses 25 through 33, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body. What you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Hebrews 13 verse 5 tells us, keep your life free from the love of money. And be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If Jesus is enough, if his presence is enough for us, that's the source of our joy and contentment in this life, not the stuff we have. So I want us to turn now. That's the belief. So you have to believe that in order for there to be true transformation in the way you use God's money that he's given you, right? And so let's talk about that behavior now, right? Belief drives behavior. So what what should be the Christian's behavior with our money? Well, there's an amazing example that I want to share with you that the Apostle Paul shares in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. You see, in the first century... The Apostle Paul, was, he was collecting an offering to assist the Christians living in Jerusalem, <clears throat> Jerusalem who were facing really difficult circumstances. So Paul and, and other Christians knew, hey, we've got, to help, we've got to help our brothers and sisters in Christ. We've got to help them out. They're really struggling, right? And so we're going to take up an offering. 
for them. And so Paul's traveling around in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. He's writing to the church at Corinth and he's wanting them to give generously to this offering he's collecting for those struggling Christians in Jerusalem. So to encourage them to do that, he tells them about how another church, the Macedonians, they already gave to this offering. Okay, and here's what he said. Look at this. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. So Paul, just to be clear, he's writing to the church at Corinth, trying to encourage them by telling them how the Macedonians already gave to this offering. Here's what he says. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. That is truly remarkable. And I think we can also learn and be motivated by the Macedonians' example here. You see, even though they were facing tough times, they still believed deep in their hearts that it was worth it to make an internal investment in God's kingdom. They weren't laying up earthly treasures. They were laying up heavenly treasures just as Jesus had taught. And you see, this kind of generosity in the midst of poverty and affliction can only be explained by their heart's greatest treasure being Christ and his kingdom. So, what, what can we learn from this example? Well, three things. We must willingly invest in God's kingdom, first of all, in every season, consistently. That's what you see the Macedonians doing here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, look at this again. It says, for in a severe test of affliction, in their extreme poverty, they gave according to their means. Times were hard for the Macedonians, but even in that tough financial season, they still gave. They were consistent. Not because someone coerced them, not because they were required to, not at all. They gave according to their means and beyond their means, Paul says, of their own accord. It was willingly. They invested willingly in God's kingdom consistently, even in that tough season. Not just that, look at this. Number two, they invested willingly in God's kingdom joyfully. So consistently, number one. Number two, joyfully. Look at verse two again. In the abundance of joy. In their abundance of joy and their wealth of generosity. I mean, that's, in our minds, that sounds crazy. The Macedonians themselves <clears throat> were living in extreme poverty, not just poverty. Paul says extreme poverty. Yet they were joyful. They were living with almost nothing. And yet they were joyful. Because why? Because of their belief. Their belief is what drove their hearts. 
Their hearts were following the Lord and his eternal treasure. That's where joy comes from. No matter what circumstance we may find ourselves in. And so that joy produced generosity. Because they look around and they look at what they have. And even though it was very little and they gave according to what they had, it was more than enough because they were giving for the right reason. They looked around at what they had and they said, you know what, everything we have belongs to God. Let's give to help out our brothers and sisters. Number three, they gave generously. Look again, verse two and three, a wealth of generosity and beyond their means. We must willingly invest, just like the Macedonians, in God's kingdom in every season consistently joyfully because we know that it all belongs to God and we're going to get the riches of heaven one day anyways and generously we've been given so much by God how can we not give much to others who need to see the grace of God so how much should you give back to God how much should you give in the offering here at church guess what we're not going to tell you a number we're not going to even tell you a percentage I just want to read what Paul says himself in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7. Look at this. He says, the point is this. Here's the point. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one, all of us, must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Jesus did not go to the cross reluctantly. He gave up everything he had, his own life, willingly, joyfully, generously. The point is not the amount. That's going to vary for all of us because we all have different financial situations and we understand that. But the point is exactly what Paul just said and the principles we derive from that Macedonian example. And so ask yourself, am I giving consistently? Am I giving joyfully? And am I giving generously? Am I storing up heavenly treasure? Where is my heart? Really? It's convicting, I know. Russ Crossan, a Christian and former CEO of the wealth management firm, Ronald Blue and Company, says a couple of things I want to share uh, with you from his book, The Truth About Money Lies. I want to read a little example he gives and then some, some good wise words here. He says, Randy Alcorn, this is a different author, Randy Alcorn in his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, uses a great analogy to illustrate this principle. He says this, <clears throat> imagine for a moment that you are alive at the very end of the Civil War. You are living in the South, but home is really in the North. While in the South, you have accumulated a good amount of Confederate currency. Suppose you also know for a fact that the North is going to win the war and that the end could come at any time. What will you do with all of your Confederate money? If you are smart, there's only one answer to the question. You would cash in your Confederate currency for U.S. currency. The only money 
that will have value once the war is over. You would keep only enough Confederate currency to meet your basic needs for that short period until the war was over and the money would become worthless. As believers, we have inside knowledge of an eventual major change in the worldwide social and economic situation. The currency of this world, its money and possessions will be worthless at our death or at Christ's return, both of which are imminent. This should encourage us to use a lot of our money for eternal purposes. He then shares some practical examples of ways you can invest in God's kingdom. So if you're taking notes, just jot down some of these ideas. These are just practical ideas that Russ Crossan shares and I want to share with you. He says, how do, we store up, how do we store up treasure in heaven? What does that look like practically in your life? Well, he says we invest in people-oriented endeavors that will encourage them to believe in Jesus Christ and grow in their knowledge of the Word of God. People and the Word of God are the only two things that last forever. We can give to our local church, missionaries, send teenagers on summer mission projects, help build structures, provide food for the homeless, pay the rent for a needy family, provide for Bible translating, and give to many other worthy projects. Once we open our hands and desire to store up treasure in the right place, God will give us the wisdom as to how much, where, and when to give. Couldn't say it better, that's why I read it. He's so right. You see, once you solidify that belief in your heart that you're, and you make that commitment that you're going to live for eternal treasure, once you decide to seek first the kingdom of God, as Jesus taught, man, all these other things will be added to you. The Lord will give you wisdom to know how to manage the rest. He will lead you exactly where you need to be. He will show you who you need to help. He will tell you how much you need to give to the church. The Lord will reveal these things to you, but not if you're tuning him out and not even asking and not truly committing yourself and your finances to him in the first place. So Christians, Christians in this room, listen, can we show the world? Can we show the world what it looks like for someone to live for something greater than this world? And our lives, Christians, our lives speak to this lost and dying world who does believe that this world is all there is. Are we no different? We can't say we want to reach this world for Christ and then live no differently than the world in our pursuit of idols, giving Generously and joyfully to God's kingdom work is one great piece of evidence that your heart has truly been transformed by the gospel. I want to close with this scripture and then we're going to pray. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 12. This is a great summary here. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we <clears throat> cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. 
But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. May that be our aim. May that be our pursuit. Jesus himself declaring with our lives and with our bank account that he is enough, that he is first, and everything else comes somewhere after that. Could you make that commitment today? As we conclude this Home Life series, the theme of this series has been, Lord, would your kingdom come and your will be done? Whatever is true in heaven, may it be true in my home. So pray that today, and specifically today, pray, would that be true with the way I manage the blessings, the resources, and the money that you've given me? May I invest it in eternal treasure. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are thankful that our greatest treasure is you. That you became poor so that we could become spiritually rich Lord, you became economically poor, socially poor. Lord, you gave up everything to humble yourself and die in our place on the cross and raise from the grave to show us that there is a better world, that there is an eternal future for us. So Lord, if there's anyone in here who has not turned from their idolatries and their sin and they're just trusting in those things to save them somehow, to bring them all the security, acceptance, peace, and fulfillment they've ever wanted, Lord, I pray that you would convict their hearts and speak to them and show them that you are enough, that you will give them those things, Jesus, that you are, you are the greatest treasure. Lord, for us who are Christians, and we feel the weight and stress of our personal finances and money right now with inflation and all these things going on in the world. Lord, we feel that weight. But Lord, may we look to you, Jesus, first and see how much we've been given, that we are spiritually rich, that we have a wonderful inheritance, a magnitude of inheritance waiting for us. And so we live towards that with the way we conduct our lives now. Lord, may we look to the Macedonians and give consistently and joyfully and generously just like they did because they got it. They understood. They were living for eternity. So Lord, we know this is convicting. Jesus, I'm convicted by it myself. This is, this is tough. This is hard. This is not easy for anybody in here, Lord. So help us. Holy Spirit, lead us to where we need to be. Give us great wisdom in how we spend our money, how we manage it, how we think about it. 
what we believe truly in our hearts. Lord Jesus, would you make yourself our greatest treasure and transform our lives. May our homes truly be shaped by your glory and your truth. And as we wrap up this series today, Lord, may we all declare, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord.